My next guest is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University, also a former reporter for the likes of The Economist and The New Yorker. Gary Bass has spent the last decade researching and writing his latest book, Judgment at Tokyo, about the post-Second World War trial of Japan's leaders as war criminals and that impact too on Asia and the world. It's an epic story of wartime action as well as dramatic courtroom battles and the formative years that set the stage for the post-war era in the Asia-Pacific. I asked Dr Bass that while many people will be familiar with the Nuremberg trials, perhaps fewer people are aware a post-war trial took place in Tokyo. It's extraordinary that there was a trial held at all, that originally the plan was to execute a, a small number of German and Japanese war criminals. And given the fury in the United States at Pearl Harbor, the fury in Australia about the Burma-Thailand death railway, there was real pressure to say, look, you know, none of these Japanese defendants deserve a trial. They should just be taken out back and shot. And the way in which it's a misfire and a fizzle, right? I mean, in some ways, it's better than that alternative. It's an impressive gathering of evidence about atrocities in China, about the abuse of allied POWs. There are things about it that are impressive. But what's striking looking at it in the present day is the extent to which the history of World War II remains a sort of sore issue across East Asia that it's an issue for the Chinese Communist Party to exploit, to beat up on Japan. But there's also their thing, you know, that mainstream conservative Japanese politicians will say about World War II that would never be said by German politicians. Some of these atrocities never happened, or the other side was just as bad, or we have nothing to apologize for. You just can't imagine mainstream German politicians saying anything like that. And so how did it get to that point? It was sort of neither a kangaroo court, nor was it an exemplar of, of perhaps how to run things. So what did this amount to? Was it more than a victor's justice? Well, so I mean, certainly when you have conversations with Japanese about it, then the first thing that most Japanese who are interested in this will say is that it was victor's justice. And in a sense, that's true. Right? I mean, there's no... There are no allied governments who are put on trial. There is no uh, accounting for the Soviet Union killing vast numbers of Japanese POWs. There is no accounting for the firebombing of Japanese cities um, by the American Air Force. There's no accounting for the atomic bombs. So there's a sense in which it's certainly one-sided. But you could say the same thing about Nuremberg, and you don't get those, uh, those sorts of accusations in Germany. Any form of justice you know, an attempt to sort of put things before a war crimes tribunal. It's never going to tell the whole story. It's never going to punish all the people who deserve to be punished. Something like 14 million Chinese died during the war. So putting on trial 28 senior Japanese leaders is, it's a form of justice, but it's not perfect justice. It's not normal justice. It's not the kind of criminal justice that you expect in front of New Zealand courts or Canadian courts. Mm. So it looked, you know, in that sense, it looks very different. Because the Japanese prime minister was one of the people that was tried and ultimately executed, but the emperor Hirohito was spared. 
and not indicted at all. So what was that about? Was that about trying to sanitise his role during the wartime? Yeah, so uh, Tojo Hideki, who's the uh, wartime prime minister of Imperial Japan, uh, including at the time the attack on the United States at Pearl Harbor and the attack on the British Empire and the Dutch Empire, all of which happens at the same point, Tojo is put on trial, as are other Japanese prime ministers, and he is convicted and hanged. In contrast, the emperor of Japan, who is formally the top of the chain of command, is spared. The Australian government actually tries very hard to sneak the emperor onto the lists of war criminals and argues throughout that the emperor was as guilty as many of the people who are on trial and should have been punished. But the United States sees the emperor as crucial, first of all, to ending the war, and secondly, to getting Japanese troops all across Asia to lay down their arms. And thirdly, to legitimizing the American-led allied occupation of Japan. And for that reason, there's a decision pushed hardest by General Douglas MacArthur, who's the American general, who's sort of the potentate ruling over occupied Japan, who insists that putting the emperor on trial would be a recipe for unrest, possibly a Japanese revolution, a disaster that they wanted to avoid. Mind you, it still became very thorny. And there were some pretty interesting characters on the judge's bench too, which uh, provided a level of complexity that perhaps wasn't thought of when it was conceived. That's right. There are, and there are several judges who are furious about the fact that the emperor is not put on trial, including the Australian judge, chief judge, And the Chinese judge, who's an extraordinary figure, one of the things that's striking about the Tokyo trial as distinct from Nuremberg is in Nuremberg, you only have four judges, American, British, uh, French, and Soviet. Whereas at Tokyo, you have 11 judges from all of the major allied powers involved in the war, including China, including the Philippines, including India including Australia and including New Zealand. There's a very influential judge from New Zealand who's one of the real mainstays of the majority. But a lot of these judges are scandalized at the idea. And I think to this day, it sort of, it poses a question for Japanese that a lot of these defendants went along with the militarists running people like Tojo Hideki. A lot of them knew better and knew this was a bad idea And in some ways, it echoed some of the compromises that ordinary Japanese had made with the wartime government. And that sort of begs the question that if the emperor, who made his own accommodations with these obviously out-of-control army guys, if he's spared, then how can we be punished? Uh, We didn't do anything worse than what the emperor did. You mentioned that some of the atrocities seemed to fall outside the scope. You mentioned that, you know, the Allied governments, for example, were not on trial, despite the fact that things like nuclear bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There were some attempts at justice. Uh, There are some atrocities that we know about more because of the trial. It's quite interesting what was sort of what was left in and what was left out. That's right. I think one of the things that the trial has in its favor is it brought to the awareness of the Japanese public, which had, you know, their information about the war was filtered through the censorship 
of their own government. So uh, lots of Japanese had no idea that anything had happened at Nanjing when it's conquered in 1937 and then into 1938. They've been told that the, you know, the Japanese army is the most honorable and chivalrous in the world. And ordinary Japanese are shocked and horrified when they discover that there was massacre and mass rape going on in what was at the time the Chinese capital. Uh, there are revelations about atrocities in the conquest of Manila at the end of the war, revelations about killing of Filipino civilians and guerrillas in ways that actually stun the Japanese public and help to turn them against the militarist government that they had had before. So even though it's not a full accounting, it doesn't sort of give, it doesn't take on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the firebombing of Tokyo. It does focus attention on uh, Japanese aggression and Japanese atrocities in a way that has a considerable impact on the Japanese public. Indeed, as well, though, there was no indictment over, for example, the comfort women. And the legacy around that, I guess, still to some extent reverberates. And how much were things like that left out because this was ultimately rendered a political project? Yeah, I mean, I think in the specifically in the case of these women who were coerced into a kind of, you know, sexual service for Japanese troops, the so known as the comfort women, they're left out in part because not just the politics of the era, but the sexism of the era, right? I mean, there's not that much attention to women. There's a very small number of women who are actually involved. There's some testimony uh, affidavits from women about Nanjing, and there's a remarkable Australian nurse, Vivian Bullwinkle, who had survived a massacre, who's qu quite well known in Australia. She So she testifies at the Tokyo trial, and there sort of calls some attention to it. The trial runs from 1946 into 1948, and there are all sorts of standards of sexism and attitudes of the, of the day that don't carry so well into the present. Also, the racism and white supremacy and colonialism in the place of empire were undermining, I guess, the trial right from the get-go, and that reverberated the whole way through. Racism is a, you know, a theme that runs throughout the trial, and it's something that is, so, you know, therefore... A, a theme in this book, which there's, you know, there's racism on multiple sides. There is American troops and allied troops had stereotypes of the Japanese as monkeys, as subhuman, who said, you know, that they were capable of taking Singapore because they swung from vine to vine in the jungle, which is a sort of racist way of putting down a really remarkable military achievement, the Japanese conquest of Singapore. There's also on the Japanese side, there's a variety of racial or ethnic attitudes that, you know, treating themselves as superior to other Asian peoples, that they're better than the Chinese and better than the Filipinos, and they're going to sort of bring them along. And there's also, as you said, exactly, there is this sort of clash of empires that the claim that the Japanese defendants make is we're doing basically what the West did. We just got to it late. So we are setting up an, 
an empire of a kind. But that's how is that particularly different from what the British are doing in India and in Singapore? Um, how's that different from what the French are doing in what was then Indochina, today Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos? How's that different from what the Dutch are doing when what was then the Netherlands, East Indies, today Indonesia, or the Americans in the Philippines? That's something that really the judges have a, a hard time grappling with. It's central to the opinion of one of the judges, the Indian judge, writes this epic, like mm. thousand plus page dissent. And is a big hero among conservatives and nationalists in Japan to this day, because he said, look, this is just a veil over Western imperialism. Yeah, his uh, dissenting opinion is, I suppose, one of the really extraordinary things that comes out of the other end. Um, he wrote the Japanese militarism was a justified response to centuries of racism and colonialism in Asia. I mean, almost... Uh, saying that now is the kind of thing that would get people going. I, I sort of can't quite imagine what it would have been like that back then. Yes, it's. In, I mean, he says that the Japanese were fighting in self-defense against Western encirclement. He says that, you know, the American, the British uh, and the Dutch providing help to China after it's been invaded first in the Northeast in 1931 and then a full-scale invasion in 1937. The Indian judge says... By doing that, the people who are defending China have de essentially declared themselves to be in conflict with Japan. And it's deeply shocking in 1945. And, you know, as you say, I think still pretty shocking today. Among the people who are shocked by it are the Indian government itself. Nehru is horrified by this um, and privately goes to the British government and says, look, we just want you to know we had nothing to do with this. He's an independent judge. We sent him there. We had no idea that he was, it was actually the British who sent it, who sent him there. He, he was a British imperial subject at the time that he's appointed to the court. So it's, it was the British who chose him, not, not independent India. But Nehru is horrified. Nehru thinks it's possible to be simultaneously against Japanese imperialism and British imperialism. The principles of international law here, they're not really applied evenly across the crimes or perhaps the violence is a better way of putting it, of the war. Obviously there were the Nuremberg trials which focused on the Nazis. There is the trial at Tokyo which focuses on the Japanese but there is no accounting for, for the atomic bombs, for an awful lot of things that happened also on the Soviet side of the war. How was that received at the time? Was that something that the anger was palpable about? So, I, you know, I think it's always the case that international law is not applied evenly, that strong powers manage to shelter themselves. Or there was recently the case, the case of Omar al-Bashir, who was in, indicted by the International Criminal Court, went to South Africa. South Africa was a member of the court. South Africa was supposed to turn him over. South Africa didn't, right? Stronger countries, Omar al-Bashir of Sunan, countries can sometimes can resist this stuff. And that's certainly the case for the Soviet Union at Tokyo, where Japanese defendants say, look, I mean, the Soviets were the ones who were contemplating aggression against us. Defense lawyers point to how uh, the Soviets 
stormed into Finland and the Baltic states. Defense lawyers also point out the American use of atomic bombs. So in that sense, you know, there is a there's a profound unfairness about the trial that there is the reasons for uh, Japanese to have concerns about it. At the same time, I think, you know, a lot of what the tribunal does is brings out things that really were appalling, right? I mean, more Australians died as prisoners of Imperial Japan than died uh, in combat against Imperial Japan. So those are things that I think are worth addressing, even if you can't have a uniform application of international law. Yeah, because I suppose, um, (laughs) can you see that there could have been an outcome following a war like the Second World War that would have been anything other than problematic? It's extremely difficult to uh, think of a way that you could have a panel of judges that would be truly impartial sitting from 1946 to 1948, right? Every person you would have as a judge has pretty strong opinions about the rights and wrongs of World War II. It's not like a judge who sort of comes to a criminal case knowing nothing about the defendant, knowing nothing about the circumstances of the crime. And because it's a world war, every country is involved, right? There is no such thing as, you know, a truly neutral power from 1946 to 1948. Everyone was involved. What I think is something that I think where um, Tokyo deserves some credit is because there are 11 judges from 11 different allied countries, it dilutes the influence of the Soviet Union. It also dilutes the influence of the United States, the United States, which could have been very influential at Tokyo, uh, is actually not that influential. The British Empire matters much more for the prosecution. But it also means you have judges, in particular the Chinese judge and the Filipino judge, who get to speak for the Asian peoples who are victimized by Imperial Japan. And there's not really an equivalent of that at Nuremberg, right? Nuremberg has no Polish judge. There's no Jewish judge. Uh, Consideration of the Holocaust. It's not even a secondary concern at Nuremberg. It's a tertiary concern at Nuremberg. Nuremberg, like Tokyo, is primarily about aggression. Um, That's the war crime that really bothers the Allied powers. But crimes against humanity, against Jews, not really what Nuremberg is about. There are subsequent trials that pay more attention to that, about the genocide of the Jewish people. And in China, there is tremendous outrage, and there's a Chinese judge who's there to to speak to that. In the Philippines, there is, again, you know, tremendous popular outrage at what Imperial Japan did. And there's a Filipino judge who himself is actually a survivor of the Bataan Death March, so has personal experience of Japanese war crimes. And he's there to sort of speak for the suffering of his people. Mm. The situation with prisoners of war, what detail did you uncover around some of the attitudes that the Japanese displayed towards uh, prisoners of war from some of the different countries that were involved in the Second World War? It's a great question. It's a difficult one that the sort of the claim that the Japanese government makes is we won lightning fast victories faster than we had really expected and found ourselves with these huge populations of allied POWs at Singapore and elsewhere. 
And that would have strained, you know, it strains a political system. That's their claim. But they also, Tojo in particular, makes an argument which he means is a defense, but actually I think serves to condemn him. He says, we as Japanese have a different attitude towards surrender from soldiers from Australia or New Zealand or Canada or the United States or Britain or France, that we regard surrender as a disgrace. We expect Japanese troops to fight on until an honorable death. This is what Tojo says. And therefore, when our Japanese troops, Tojo says, are confronted with these Australians or Canadians or who have surrendered, then they're seen as shameful and they're treated as shameful. And he says that's some of the reason for the abuse. But if you look at incidents like, you know, notorious incidents like the Burma-Thailand death railway or the, the Bataan death march, you really do see, I mean, the trial brings this out, an incredible level of cruelty. There's an Australian soldier who testifies about having Japanese troops attempt to decapitate him with a sword. They manage to slash him in the neck with the sword, but it doesn't kill him. And he comes into court and testifies about that experience of nearly having your head chopped off with a Japanese sword. And that I think you know, is searing, um, searing testimony. And it's something that people in Australia and New Zealand correctly remember with horror, right? I mean, the, the memory of the war is still, as you know much better than me, is still very much a live issue in New Zealand, a live issue in Australia. And I think the Tokyo trial does, it gives some tribute to the people who fought in the war by remembering some of that suffering, by having, you know, an awareness of some of the extreme cruelty that goes way beyond military necessity that was used by Imperial Japan against troops from New Zealand and Australia and elsewhere. Mm. An interesting book to read at the moment while we see wars like Gaza and Ukraine going on. Interesting to know that Emperor Hirohito didn't surrender unconditionally. It was still a negotiation the way that the war came about. What does this tell us about about war, but also about how wars end? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this book took me 10 years to write, so it wasn't written with any particular thing in the news. But it underlines that wars very rarely end in unconditional surrender. And that in some ways, Nuremberg is sort of the wrong image of what happens at the end of a war. Nazi Germany really does give an unconditional surrender. And that means there's no extra obstacle to putting war criminals on trial. But most wars end with a negotiated settlement of some kind implicitly. And even the war against Imperial Japan, where officially since 1943, the Allied goal is an unconditional surrender. But even that war actually ends with a negotiation between the Japanese government and the US government under Harry Truman, who's then the president of the United States, where the Japanese government says, even after two atomic bombs and the Soviet entry into the war, the Japanese government says, we won't surrender if that means the overthrow of the emperor. And the Americans 
quietly under the table agree to that. So even in World War II that ends with unconditional surrender, you do end with a negotiation, and that negotiation often leads to some kind of impunity um, that all sorts of people who deserve to be prosecuted for war crimes wind up not getting prosecuted for war crimes. And that what makes this stuff, I think, fascinating is that you have competing political values that we would consider to be sacred. On the one hand, you have the principle that war crimes must be punished and justice has to be done for people who've carried out terrible, terrible deeds. And on the other hand, you have the principle that you need peace and every day that a demand for justice keeps a war going is a day in which more innocent people are going to die. And those are incredibly hard you know, rival principles to reconcile was part of what may, makes it, I think, such a fascinating piece of history. Mm. And I suppose the legacy and the effect that this still has on us so many decades later, you know, Japan is now a stable democracy, but there are some underlying tensions and there are some areas that weren't paid attention to at the trial in Tokyo, like the so-called comfort women, uh, a very patriarchal society still that exists in Japan. I wonder if that would have been different had the situation and the atrocities that were committed against so many women been addressed. But then at the other side of it, if Japan is stable, how much can be attributed to the Truman administration maybe not striking the perfect balance, but striking a decent balance? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And in some way, you know, I sort of hope that readers will, will wrestle with that. Um, but I think there is, you know, the, the trial instills a sense that there are some things that political leaders do that aren't just acts of state, that are actual crimes, that like the attack on Pearl Harbor or the Nanjing Massacre, those aren't acts of government. Those are crimes being done by people who are sitting in government offices, right? So that principle does get across. It's not perfect justice by any means. There are lots of things that are left out, including exactly as you say, this sexual coercion, which is done in a systematic way. There are more than 200 quote-unquote comfort stations in uh, occupied areas of China, right? This is a massive systematic program, and there isn't proper accountability for that. There are many of the people who are in, you know, in command for it are punished, but it's not brought out in the way that it properly should have done. So there's a lot that's imperfect. On the other hand, I think if you could have shown to the Allied leadership at the time, Japan as it looks today, democratic, peaceful, a model international citizen, gives a lot of development aid, they would faint with relief. I mean, they would be, for people in 1945 thinking about remaking Japan, if they could see the country that exists today, they would think this is beyond their wildest dreams of success. And then if they were to sort of, to pick up my book and read the epilogue and it says, oh, in the epilogue, it says that they haven't, you know, wrestled properly with the legacy of the war. They haven't talked enough about the suffering of Korean women who were forced the you know this horrible coercion forced against them they have there have been official japanese apologies but they i think 
if MacArthur could could read that part of my book, I think he would tell me that I'm just an idiot and that this is ridiculous, that Japan has turned out better than anyone could have possibly imagined, and I should mind my own business. That is Dr. Gary Bass speaking there about his book, Judgment at Tokyo, World War II on Trial and the Making of Modern Asia. A fascinating read.